0: The main theme I want to dwell on this evening is uh, the idea of psychedelics expanding consciousness. I mean, the word literally means psyche-revealing, soul-revealing, or mind-revealing. But they're always often often being said to expand the mind. And I think that's what they do. Um, And so I want to talk about some aspects of that. And my own experience of um, mind-altering substances um, began, I think, around, well, no, I think it did, began in 1968. I was traveling in India on my way to Malaysia, where I was working in at the botany department of the University of Malaya uh, on tropical rainforest plants. And on my way through India, I was in Delhi, I only knew one person in Delhi in India, and that was a friend of mine who was a research student at Cambridge, an anthropologist who was working with a, a group of Indians in a village up in the Himalayas. I hadn't arranged to meet him, but I just bumped into him. He happened to be in Delhi by chance, and he said, would you like to come to my village? So I thought this would be an amazing opportunity, so... I went with him, we took buses, we trundled up dusty roads, uh, we walked several miles from the last bus stop um, to his remote village. There was no electricity, no TV. Um, and he was living with a, a herbal Brahmin, um, a, herbal, a herbalist, a Brahmin who was a herbalist. Um, very simple. Um, but he knew the local language, Pahadi. Um, and I spent several days there, and it was just amazing to be plunged into rural India, you know, a week after leaving Cambridge, and one of the things we did, after I'd been there two or three days, we were, were going for a walk along a valley, and there was a, a rushing torrent coming down, and there was a cave by the river, and in it, there was this orange-clad figure, and so I said to him, who's that? He said, oh, that's the local holy man, and the holy man waved to us and invited us to visit him in his cave, which we did. And when we were there, he produced a chillum. I'd never seen one before, a clay pipe. Um, And he asked if I'd like to smoke some of Shiva's holy plant. I didn't know what Shiva's holy plant was, but I thought, why not? Here I am in India. Um, And so I, I smoked it. He showed me how. Um, And it had an enormously powerful effect. It was very, very strong cannabis, and maybe with other things too. Um, And this was the first time I'd taken cannabis. And um, I stepped out of the cave, and there I was, and the fields were green around the mountains with the snow on the top. I felt this incredible sense of connection with the land, with the place. I felt this sense of divine presence. I felt I was part of a much larger consciousness than my own now at that stage i was an atheist i'd rejected religious belief as a teenager like many people do and i'd been doing scientific research and adopted the atheist materialist worldview nothing had prepared me for this experience um, and it literally opened my mind and the cannabis acted as a gateway drug as we're often told it does um, for me and later when I got back to Cambridge around 1970 um, I, a friend of mine asked if I'd like to try LSD so um, I did um, I think it was a very high dose, in those days people usually took 250 micrograms, that was considered normal, it's now considered quite high um, it had a hugely powerful effect upon me and um, opened my mind. In, in I went through regions of terror, regions of total beauty, um, uh, colours that I'd never experienced before. Music turned into beautiful shapes and forms changing along with the music. Plants glowed radiantly and light shot out of them. Um, flocks of birds in the sky had sort of envelopes of around them at the field of the flock, I thought I was seeing. Uh, it was an enormously revelatory experience. And it opened my mind uh, to the possibility that consciousness was far more than I'd been taught. I studied physiology as an undergraduate at Cambridge. We had lectures on the brain and on nerve impulses, and I'd studied all that. Um, And I knew the official view was our minds are nothing but the activity of our brains. Um, They're inside our heads. um, And it's all about nerve impulses and so forth. But nothing had prepared me for this. Um, And I got very interested in the nature of consciousness. As a result, I started reading philosophy of mind, particularly Hindu philosophy of mind. I took up transcendental meditation around 1971. Um, because I got interested in exploring consciousness without drugs um, and finding out more about the nature of the mind from within. Um, Later in the 1980s, I became friends with Terence McKenna and Ralph Abraham, who I met in California. Terence was a great visionary, um, an expert on psychedelic shamanism. Ralph um was and still is a mathematician at the university of california at santa cruz particularly interested in computer graphics uh, a field which was enormously influenced by psychedelics as he himself was the first to admit and indeed he was one of the pioneers of this whole field of computer graphics um And since then, I've had many friends who are engaged in research in this area and uh, thought a lot about it. Um, But all along, there's been this tremendous tension between the direct experience of these substances and the official scientific view. Uh, Many people just don't bother with the official scientific view. um, But I have to. I'm a scientist. I write papers and do research and publish things in peer-reviewed journals and hang out with a lot of scientists. Um, and the official scientific view of the mind, as I mentioned, is the materialist view. The mind is nothing but the activity of the brain. Consciousness is a kind of phosphorescence around the nerve endings or a reality, uh, a virtual reality display produced inside the head. Or in the words of El Seth in his new book, um, it's a controlled hallucination that our brains produce, a controlled hallucination, and it's all inside the head. Now, I found that incredibly implausible. And yet it's still the official view. It's still what's taught in our schools and universities. It's still the basis of 99.9% of research in psychology and cognitive science and um uh, and in, in, in official uh, view and in medicine and official views of the brain. It's all supposed to be inside the head. Well, I don't think it is. And one of the consequences of my own experiences was to try and explore how scientifically we could think of the mind as being more extensive than the brain, um, how we can think of the mind as being expanded or extended. I think that the, the first point uh, is that in just normal experience, like now, everyday experience, um, as you see things around you, I am seeing my room around me, the computer screen in front of me, and so on, um, that the official view is that light comes into the eyes, there are inverted images on the retina, changes in the optic nerve, and changes in various regions of the brain. The visual cortex and other parts of the brain. Well, all that's true, um, and it's very good as far as it goes. But the trouble is that discovering that there are changes in the brain when you see things, and showing through brain scans where they are in greater detail than ever before, uh, doesn't actually explain vision. It doesn't explain, first of all, why you're conscious at all, and secondly, it doesn't explain why you're seeing things outside your head, not inside your head, where these images are supposed to be. You're meant to have representations inside the brain, a copy of the external world. Uh, Everything you're seeing around you now is a copy inside the brain of what's out there. That's the official view. And yet that's not how it actually feels. And nobody's ever seen Uh, A virtual reality display inside a brain, even in open brain surgery, Um, people don't see virtual three dimensional full color virtual reality displays inside the brain. I think what's going on is that when we see things, not only do uh, images come in through the retinas and impulses up the optic nerve and changes in the brain, but we also project out. Uh, the visual images so I think everything I'm seeing the images I'm seeing are not inside my brain they're exactly where they seem to be your image of me on your computer or telephone screen um, is exactly where it seems to be not inside your brain it's in your mind but not inside your head um, I got interested in this more extended view of the mind just in ordinary everyday perception um, And when I discuss it with colleagues, then they'd say, oh, well, that's just an interpretation. I mean, how could you measure it or prove it? This is just a a way of thinking about it, at best, a speculative theory. Uh, What's real is what we measure inside the brain through electrophysiology and so forth. Well, it occurred to me that one um, test of this would be that if you look at someone from behind, If your mind reaches out to touch them, then you might be able to affect someone by looking at them. And as soon as I thought about it, I realized this is an extremely common phenomenon. Most people have experienced the sense of being stared at or scopesthesia, as it's now called scientifically. Um, People have experienced their mind being more extensive than the brain uh, through influencing others or being influenced by others' minds at a distance. Uh, this is something I've done quite a bit of research on, and I've written a book called uh, The Sense of Being Stared At, where I discuss all the evidence and all these issues to do with the extended mind. I think our minds also extend and influence others through thoughts and intentions, um, as in telepathy, in telephone telepathy, um, which is the commonest kind in the modern world. If I'm thinking of someone, I want to call them. Um, I have, of course, an intention to call them in my mind. There's a sense in which my mind reaches out to that person and they may start thinking about me because I'm intending to call them. And then when I do call them a little bit later, uh, they may say, Rupert, that's funny. I was just thinking about you. Well, this kind of telephone telepathy uh, is experienced by more than 80% of the population. And I think... Uh, shows the mind is extended outwards in, uh, in, in through intention. Telepathy works with people who are closely bonded. It also works with animals. Uh, many dogs pick up their owner's intentions to come home and start waiting for them before they arrive. Um, that's, um, that research is summarised in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. All of these. Uh, are backed up by lots and lots of papers in peer-reviewed journals, which you can read on my website. Um, well, attention and intention are ways in which the mind stretches out into the world around us. Ad tendere means to stretch towards, intendere, in Latin, means to stretch into. And I think our minds literally stretch out beyond our brains all the time in just ordinary waking life um, And I think similar things happen with other um, animals as well. I think the minds of dogs, the minds of cats, the minds of horses, of birds, of all animals, stretch out uh, when they're looking at things, so their minds are extended through their senses into the world all around them. Now, when we come to the uh, psychedelic effects, um, uh, we're dealing with... um, not just normal perception. Uh, if you take psychedelics with your eyes open um, in um, daylight, as my own preferred way of doing it is in, in natural settings, in daylight, um, then uh, it changes the way you see colours, the way you see shapes and forms. The, the earth breathes, the moss on barks of trees can, seems to be breathing, and the bark seems to be moving. I'm sure many people here have had these kinds of experiences. So it changes um, your perceptual world. And also, of course, if you shut your eyes, then uh, you have visionary experiences, primarily visual. The interesting thing about most psychedelics is that they're visual. They affect the visual sense most. There are very few that affect the auditory Sense. I mean, they affect the all, hearing in the sense that they often produce synesthesia, producing visual effects that go with the music or other sounds that you're hearing. Um, but most psychedelics, I mean, psilocybin, LSD, um, DMT, um, uh, these most of the main psychedelic families have very powerful visual effects. There are a few that don't. 5-methoxy-DMT is largely uh, non-visual, but most are primarily visual. In this sense, I think what they connect us with is a realm of visual possibilities that all of us experience every day in our dreams. Dreams involve entering an altered state of consciousness, which we experience primarily visually. and, um, dreams are about possibilities. Indeed, I think consciousness is a, primarily about possibilities. It's about exploring possibilities and choosing among them. And in dreams, uh, we can have very vivid images. Uh, we can be doing things we are not doing in, in real life. In real life, our body's lying asleep in bed, but in our dreams, we have another body, a dream body, which can move around even fly, um, see things, talk to people, um, do things. Um, uh, This is part of our normal being. I mean, children dream, babies dream, and um, even embryos in wombs have rapid eye movement, which is suggestive that they too are dreaming, even before they're born. So dreams are very much part of our conscious world. And in modern materialistic secular societies, they're rather marginalized. They're just treated as of no particular significance. Occasionally, if people go to uh, psychotherapists, they, they, they might have find someone who's interested in their dreams. Um, and indeed, they can reveal a great deal about the mind, as Freud and Jung and many other psychotherapists have shown. Um, but basically, they're not taken very seriously in our world. Most people don't bother to write them down or pay much attention to them. But what dreams show is that all of us have this capacity to generate visionary states, possible realms of experience um, different from our normal life within our minds. And I myself think that psychedelics uh, exaggerate that ability to dream. I think that Psychedelic visionary experiences are continuous with dreams, as it were. They're part of the same spectrum as dreams. They're just much further along in terms of vividness and alertness, and the way to pay uh, and the ability to pay attention um, to them. And in our dreams, we have all sorts of encounters. We can encounter other people. We can meet people and talk to them. We can meet dead people and talk to them. Um, I sometimes meet my parents who are both dead in my dreams. Um, We can meet other kinds of beings, animals and plants and other kinds of beings altogether in in our dreams. Um, Some people dream of saints and have visions of saints, which are a special kind of dead people, ones that are particularly closely connected to god it's believed within um, religious traditions um, and many people see gods and goddesses in their dreams um, when i got interested in this uh, idea of collective dream consciousness which jung of course wrote a great deal about in his idea of the, the collective unconscious as a kind of collective memory um, i got interested in whether Hindus dream of Ganesh. Ganesh is an elephant headed god, a son of Shiva, according to Indian mythology, um, who couldn't possibly have existed in real life unless there were elephant head transplants, which seemed extremely unlikely. So Ganesh is, in a sense, a product of the imagination. And yet Ganesh can also be a channel of divine uh Grace or um, because it, it doesn't have to be um, necessarily a, a, a real person or real object. It can come through an image um, in the um, Eastern Orthodox churches. People have icons to help in their prayer and meditation. They're not worshipping the picture on a piece of wood, uh, but it's acting as a channel through which uh, some uh, spiritual energy can flow into them. Anyway, I got interested in whether Hindus dream about Ganesh, and I discovered online there are whole Ganesh dream groups in India where uh, groups of people are discussing their Ganesh dreams with each other. Um, So there's a sense in which a being, Ganesh, um, who you could say in, in, in the most banal way is a product of the human imagination or a cultural form or an artistic creation, Um, takes on a kind of collective identity for a lot of people um, in their dreams as well as in real life. Many people pray to Ganesh, there are statues of Ganesh in temples, people have pictures in their homes and so on. So when people are having psychedelic experiences, one of the things that my friend Terence McKenna was very interested in was people's encounters with entities. Uh, they encounter beings. Terence talked about encountering what he called machine elves uh, on DMT uh, trip in DMT trips. Um, lots of people encounter beings of one kind or another. Well, I don't think that these beings that people encounter in psychedelic experiences are necessarily that different from those that people encounter in dreams or in other altered states of consciousness, like shamanic trances. Some cult- In some cultures, shamans take psychedelics, but in other cultures, um, they enter trance states through different means, chanting, drumming, um, uh, and uh, other methods of entering altered states of consciousness. Um, they encounter animal spirits. They encounter the spirits of the departed, the ancestors. Um, They encounter other kinds of beings. And I think that all of these are realms of experience to which we can become open in psychedelic uh, experiences. And, of course, not all these beings are friendly. Um, All traditions speak of harmful uh, spirits or beings. Um, in the Islamic tradition, there are bad jinns as well as good jinns. In, in the Christian tradition, there are angels, spirit beings, but there are also devils who are like fallen angels, negative, um, spiritual entities. Um, there are, in the Tibetan tradition, there are deities, uh, but there are also wrathful deities who can be, uh, destructive and harmful, uh, to, if you're doing the wrong kind of thing. So, um, there are all these entities, a whole world out there of experience and of course this is a realm, um, this realm of dreamlike experience or altered state of consciousness experience which is often portrayed in art, it's the basis of a lot of fantasy and fiction uh, and artistic productions of every kind and some cultures have cartographies of these realms uh, very, one of the major ones in the western tradition is dante's um journey um, the divine comedy where he goes on a journey through the inferno down into deeper and deeper regions of hell um, where he meets groups of people who are trapped in various addictions and anger and envy in various states of mind or being which imprison or trap them um, and when he reaches the very bottom, he goes on, keeps going through the center of the earth and comes out the other side in the southern hemisphere where there's a kind of mountain, Mount Purgatory. And he ascends that mountain and meets people who are getting over various things they did in life which trapped them but from which they can move on and it's a to where people are moving on uh, before moving to paradise. And these are maps of... Realms of consciousness, states of being, some negative, some positive, and some very positive, because at the end, in the beatific vision, at the end there's this sort of release into this greater visionary realm of bliss. Now, all religious and spiritual traditions um, have the idea that beyond the world we normally experience, there are realms of consciousness that are beyond the human level, more than human realms of consciousness. As I've mentioned, realms of spirits, angels, ancestors, um, and saints, uh, but also uh, realms of the ultimately the realms of divine consciousness. The traditional view is that consciousness is not confined to human brains present only in human beings in an otherwise inanimate and purposeless universe that is the modern materialist and atheist worldview um, it's certainly it couldn't be more different from the traditional worldview which sees um, consciousness as primary um, the universe arising out of consciousness and um That consciousness still underlying everything within the universe, including our own minds, which are split off or separated off small like droplets of ultimate consciousness, um, which seem separate from each other and seem separate from the ultimate source, but are not. A very common image in India is of the idea of ultimate consciousness being a bit like the moon and if you have lots of buckets of water uh, reflecting the moon, you see the moon in each bucket. Um, and it looks as if there are hundreds of moons, but actually there's only one moon that's uh, reflected in hundreds of different uh, containers. Um, and the idea is that our own minds in that way, in, in a similar way, are part of the divine consciousness. Um But we're normally so preoccupied with our own concerns, worries, fears, ruminations, etc., limited desires, um, that we close ourselves off from that. And the idea is that we we become open to it, partly through spontaneous mystical experiences. There are uh, many people have spontaneous experiences of connection with ultimate reality. Sometimes they happen through near-death experiences. Many people who've been in accidents or had heart attacks or who nearly die have the experience of floating out of their body, um, then going through a kind of tunnel into the light where they enter a realm that's utterly blissful and loving, um, where they feel completely accepted, loved, connected, joyful. And yet, because it's a near-death experience, they can't stay there. They have to go back um, and they arrive back in their body and now they're they're in an operating theatre or people are carrying them from the scene of an accident on a stretcher or something like that, and they're suddenly in great pain. Um, But for many people who've had near-death experiences, that experience of being part of a greater realm of consciousness than their own is completely transformative. Their lives are changed by it. And I think that many rites of passage, um, which occur in in many cultures at the threshold of adulthood, um, many rites of passage involve the theme of death and rebirth. In the Native American vision quest, for example, young men fast and they go out into the wilderness where they spend some time alone fasting in danger i mean this is a trial by ordeal Uh, they could die some do or did Um, um, and what comes to them is some kind of vision of where they should be going in life they get a vision of where they're going what life holds for them what should be their mission in life their medicine. As, as some native americans put it um and this vision quest comes about through going close to death and then having a visionary experience i think that rites of passage uh, are very common in many traditional cultures and the one that's most familiar in the uh, christian world or post-christian world is baptism In the New Testament, we read that John the Baptist um, was baptizing people who were coming in large numbers to the River Jordan, to the place where he was baptizing them. Um, And how he did it was he held them under uh, the water. Um, And when they came up, um, their lives in many cases were transformed. Now, This is often treated as if it were merely symbolic. Um, But I think if we see it in a different way, it makes a lot more sense. I think what John the Baptist might have been doing was inducing near-death experiences by drowning, holding people under just long enough so that they had a near-death experience on the edge of dying by drowning. Now, um, he may have lost a few, uh, especially when he was starting out, but... um, um, he was very experienced by the time Jesus went there and was baptized by him. And the first thing we read about of Jesus's vision of his connection with God was through his baptism, uh, this sense of deep connection, um, deep affinity with God. And that transformative experience, a rite of passage, um, I think uh, certainly was symbolic of death and rebirth. But. Why have something that's symbolic when you can have the real thing and it takes a minute or two longer? Um, So this, I think, was rediscovered by uh, Baptists in in the 16th and 17th century Um, in the early church. um, Soon people did treat baptism as symbolic, um, sprinkling water over babies um, um, or if immersing them, doing it very briefly. But in the ferment of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, uh, a group of um, the, the most extreme group, really, of religious radicals, the Anabaptists, uh, Anna means again, people who thought people should be baptized again, uh, started having adult baptism through total immersion. And the people who underwent that uh, went round saying that they'd been born again, they'd seen the light, they'd died, and they'd uh, come to life again it was a spiritual birth well that makes total sense if this rite of passage had been inducing um a near death experience in these people i think that psychedelic drugs can induce rites of passage for uh, for people and near death type experiences for for many people and i think for many people today They serve a similar role to baptism at the time of the New Testament or among Anabaptists at the time in the 16th, 17th century. And maybe until much more recently, after all, in the United States is the Southern Baptists who go around about being born again and seeing the light and dying and being reborn. Many of them may actually have had this kind of near-death experience. I don't know enough to... to to have done a survey but um, it would make complete sense if they had everything they say would make sense Um, well Stan Groff who was one of the pioneers of LSD research in the 1960s and 70s collected more than 2,500 accounts of LSD experiences from people, this was when it was still legal and um, one of the things he noticed is that many of these accounts, people described an experience that, of taking LSD that was at first extremely scary. They felt constricted, imprisoned, trapped. Um, they felt they were in a hell-like state. And actually, this is what happened when I took it myself the first time. I'd never heard of Stan Groff or his research, but I felt I was trapped in a kind of underground, underwater state, completely imprisoned. I thought I'd gone mad. I thought I'd never escaped. I thought I was trapped forever. I thought I was in hell. And to prove it, uh, neon signs with hell written on them lit up all around me. Um, so uh, I was trapped. Well, Stancroft says this is a very common kind of experience. Then people find themselves going through a kind of tube or tunnel, um into the light i myself had that kind of experience i a, a reassuring word from my companion it got me out of that hell like state and i felt i was rising up through the water towards the surface and then broke out of the surface of the water into light and a place of joy and peace and beauty um exquisite beauty revelation I, it was a kind of near death experience um, well, Stan uh, Groff says that that is, in the accounts he studied, uh, a very common and recurrent theme. Other people have had this uh, kind of experience with DMT, um, and I think that, uh, I mean, I can't ask everyone here how they've been affected, um, but I suspect that this is a relatively common experience as a kind of rite of passage, especially if taken with fairly high doses as an initiatory experience into psychedelics. The experience of being in that realm of joy and bliss is not unique to psychedelics, of course. It's part of the mystical experience that comes through many different kinds of spiritual practice. Um, Psychedelics are one, uh, but they're any one of the many ways in which we can open ourselves to the spiritual realm in my recent books um, science and spiritual practices and ways to go beyond and why they work in each book i deal with seven different spiritual practices that have been studied scientifically and shown to have a positive effect they make people happier healthier and taken together these practices are now through thousands of studies shown to make people live longer as well. In other words, spiritual experiences are good for you. Spiritual practices are helpful. The corollary is that lack of spiritual practices is bad for you. probably makes you unhappier, unhealthier, and live shorter. Um, so in in this book, Science and Spiritual Practices, I discuss a number of practices, including uh, meditation, the practice of gratitude, uh, pilgrimage, singing and chanting, uh, connecting with nature. And in this book, Ways to Go Beyond, I discuss further practices, including petitionary prayer, um, fasting, um, and spiritual openings through cannabis and psychedelics, um, and a range of other uh, practices as well including sports uh, which i think is one of the main ways in which people in the modern world uh, alter enter altered states of consciousness is usually thought of as supremely secular but many people have spiritual experiences through sports so um psychedelics are not the only way of entering these uh, spiritual realms but for they're one of the quickest and in the modern world one of the uh, most important ways i think as a rite of passage for opening up the very possibility of spiritual experiences it was certainly was for me and for many people i know now there's then the question of what's actually going on here um, if you talk to a materialist and all of us have got materialist friends and acquaintances they'll say well All that's happening is these molecules are interfering with the functioning of the brain. uh, The activity of the brain changes. We know that's true because of brain scans of people on drugs. Um, And it's all just inside the head. Well, that comes back to the contracted mind view, the official materialist worldview that says it's all inside the head. Um, And some people who take psychedelics believe that um but most people who take them find it increasingly difficult to believe like I did myself um and find that these experiences open them up to the idea that the mind is vastly greater than um the brain both in ordinary everyday experience uh, through perception and um as I've talked about already um also through dreams and through the whole realm of the imagination, the imaginal realm, and also through these mystical experiences. There are some people who don't want to go as far as God in their psychedelic uh, interpretation of their psychedelic experiences. Um, But I think that may be partly because of a view of God shaped by atheist propaganda where God's often portrayed as a ridiculous belief in some bearded figure seated somewhere in the sky that telescopes and the Hubble Space Telescope and so on have failed to detect and therefore doesn't exist. Actually, the view of God is, uh, the traditional view is one as a conscious being. And I already mentioned the Hindu idea of divine consciousness underlying the universe and it's not just an undifferentiated consciousness the within the hindu tradition um, they speak of it as sat chit ananda there's three aspects to this ultimate consciousness they're not three separate consciousnesses but three aspects of the same consciousness sat is conscious being it's the ground of being the the ground of consciousness itself um, being and consciousness go together. Ultimate being is conscious. Chit is about the contents of consciousness, that which is known. The sat is the knower. Chit is more like that which can be known. Um, forms, and uh, as the Hindus say, names and forms, nama, rupa. Um, everything we see around us, the forms of things, plants, animals, books, tables, chairs. These are all things we can know. So are words and ideas and all the contents of our minds. Um, Names and forms are known because there's a ground of consciousness that can know them. Um, And one of the points of meditation um, is that by stilling the mind, by um, concentrating on a mantra or through mindfulness, Um, looking at the effects of breathing or or awareness of the body and what's happening in and around the body. Um, Through this alternative center of consciousness, we can free ourselves from being immersed in constant chatter of the mind, the endless flow of thoughts that go through our minds, ruminations, uh, which are associated with the activity of uh, brain regions called the default mode network psychedelics suppress the activity of the default node, uh network and so does meditation and so do other spiritual practices one of the reasons that sports are so effective is that if you're climbing a, a cliff face and uh, you've got a drop of hundreds of feet below you and you're looking for the next toehold or the foothold you're totally concentrated in the present you're not thinking and worrying about things you should have done yesterday or tomorrow If you're in the middle of a game of football and someone's passing you the ball, you have to be completely concentrated in the present. And that's, I think, why sports can have this transformative effect on people when they're playing them, because they suppress the default mode network and bring people into the present. So um, the openness to this larger consciousness that can happen through spiritual practices um, enables us to, uh, contact different aspects of the ultimate consciousness. I think meditation opens us more to the sat, of the sat-chit-ananda um, aspect of ultimate consciousness. I think psychedelics and the appreciation of beautiful forms and flowers um, open us to the chit aspect, names and forms. Well, psychedelics are often without names, but they're, as I said earlier, highly visual so they have much to do with exploring the realm of form and ultimate form and ananda the third part of that is joy or bliss very often these these states are accompanied by bliss or joy and the idea is that divine consciousness is blissful god is ultimately blissful and the ultimate source of bliss and the joy and bliss we experience through psychedelic experiences and through other mystical and spiritual experiences are because we contact this, we come into contact with or link to this ultimate consciousness, albeit relatively briefly. The um the Christian model of ultimate consciousness is somewhat similar. Most people don't recognize how similar it is, but I, I myself think it is. This is something I didn't really think about until. I was living in India and I lived in the ashram of a great Benedictine teacher, Father Bede Griffiths, in South India. It was called Sat chitananda Ashram in Indian and in English, the ashram of the Holy Trinity. Um, Sat in the Sat chitananda model is being, conscious being. And in the Christian model, this is God the Father, when he first announces himself to Moses in the Old Testament, and Moses said, what, who are you? He says, I am who I am. Conscious being in the present is the defining feature of this ultimate divine principle. Then the chit form to do with forms uh, in the Christian model of the Trinity is the logos, which is rather like the Platonic forms and ideas in greek philosophy particularly plato's philosophy the names and forms of all the things that we can have in our minds or know and the holy spirit is the principle of movement or flow wind and breath and flow and the the basic model in the hindu uh, in the christian trinity is is a speech god is the speaker and whenever you speak As I'm speaking now, you have on the one hand a flow of breath. (sighs) If there wasn't this flow of breath, my words would be inaudible. They'd be inside my mind, but you wouldn't be able to hear them. And if it wasn't for the pattern or the forms of the words that start off in my mind, that take on form or structure through the flow of breath, each word has a different form, a different vibratory pattern, um then you wouldn't uh, there wouldn't be any transmission of words, so I'm the speaker, there's the outward flow of breath, and there's the words that are carried by it which have form and that's I think the most fundamental metaphorical model of the ultimate nature of consciousness in this Trinitarian model now, of course, there are theologies that say, well, the ultimate reality is so far beyond anything we can conceive. Uh, we can't know it. In the Hindu tradition, that's called nirguna Brahman, Brahman without qualities, beyond all we can conceive, as opposed to saguna Brahman, Brahman with qualities. Um, and in the Christian tradition, the Holy Trinity, the ultimate nature of God, um, is um, the, the the way that God interfaces or manifests in the world. But beyond that known through the deepest kinds of spiritual experiences is what Meister Eckhart, the great medieval mystic, called the Godhead, which is, like Nirguna Brahman, God beyond all qualities, form, or ability to define uh, his nature or her nature, because once you're at that level, gender is quite meaningless. So I think that the what psychedelics can do is help to open up The mind, literally mind expanding, not the only way of expanding minds, um, and uh, but for many people a very important way of expanding minds, and through expanding our mind, recognizing our minds are part of vastly greater um, conscious realms, which include all sorts of other minds as well, beings that we can encounter in dreams, in visions, in psychedelic altered states of consciousness. Uh, which include a whole taxonomy of animal spirits, ancestors, angels, saints, uh, djinns, uh, demons, uh, um, dakinis, and so on. I mean, there are many, many um, realms of being there and also many kinds of beings in those realms uh, various traditions have different taxonomies of these beings. And I think people who take psychedelics unprepared for this are often surprised that, they, that, they, that these realms are not unpopulated or just generated inside their brains, but they have a population. There are denizens of these other realms. And then ultimately, uh, the idea that our minds are derived from a source Beyond all these forms, including all these spirit beings, which sustains them all and sustains our own minds, uh, our own minds as well. Now, you can step back from that vision as much as you like. And if you're a totally committed materialist, you can say, well, it's just a trip. It's all happening inside my brain. Um, It's all just molecules changing the way my brain works. And there are some people perfectly happy with that belief system. Uh, well, I don't think they're perfectly happy. I think it's a fairly depressing belief system. And I think that's why the endemic uh, problem of modern societies is depression. Um, and I think it's also interesting that recent research on psychedelics, um, including um, psilocybin um, and other psychedelics, has shown that they can often help people who have addictions or depression Uh, long-term chronic depression that's intractable to other treatments. And I think why they have that effect is because they enable people to go from their locked-in, closed-in state, um, which is making them so depressed, opening them to a spiritual vision, a much, much larger realm of consciousness, which has a healing effect. And that's, I think, why uh, recovery from depression or addiction is very often associated with a spiritual path, either 12 step recovery programs, which are essentially spiritual programs opening to a spiritual realm or through probably much quicker method through psychedelics opening to this vaster, much vaster realm of consciousness, which transforms people just as near death experiences transform people for the same reason. They're open to a much larger realm of consciousness. Well, that's a summary of what I uh, wanted to say this evening. And and um, as you see, I think that we can learn quite a lot from psychedelic experiences. We can also, of course, people do get lost. Uh, some people are driven psychotic by them, uh, often if they uh, take them under the wrong kinds of conditions without proper social support or guidance. Um and particularly if they're prone to psychosis in the first place, I'm certainly not advocating psychedelics in the drinking water as a cure for all society's ills. Um, but I think used responsibly um, and in the right kind of framework, um, they can be enormously helpful in our spiritual
1: and religious journeys. Thank you so much, Rupert, for sharing that with us, uh, speaking on consciousness and psychedelics. Um, We now have about 30 minutes to open up to questions. So if you have any questions, just go to the chat and type it down, and I'll just read it out to uh, Rupert. So the first question is from uh, Jacob Jones. Given the potential of psychedelic experiences to radically alter our worldviews, do you think that governments tend to be anti entheogens because of this and the likelihood that users of psychedelics will be less receptive to authoritarianism?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, the governments on the whole have tended to be against uh, psychedelics, um, although that is changing now. I mean, we're now seeing legal research and the use of psychedelics in uh, in, in medical c- conditions. Mm. And in some countries, like Brazil, um, the use of psychedelics in religious contexts is, is not illegal. Those are psychedelic, ch- well, there are several psychedelic churches in Brazil. The best known is Santo Daime. The other one is União do Vegetal. Um, and, um, members of Santo Daime is a, a Christian church with, um, where the sacrament is ayahuasca. Um, and this is a legal feature in Brazil there isn't a law against it because the the government treats it as religion and religions have always been allowed to have altered states of consciousness in medieval Europe um, governments didn't try to suppress until the Reformation they didn't try to suppress uh, hermitages and monasteries and convents where there were many people spending hours and hours a day in meditative uh, uh, prayer and contemplative prayer, many of them reaching uh, visionary and amazing altered states of consciousness. In India, uh, it's traditionally been the case that rishis, seers, or sages meditate in caves in the Himalayas and elsewhere. Um, many of them, uh, many holy men, smoke uh, ganja or um, cannabis, um, and. Again, that was always part of the traditional society. Um, so I think most in, in, in Islamic countries, the, the Sufis and other groups um, cultivate altered states of consciousness through singing, through dancing um, and through rhythmic breathing. Um, and again, these are not things that are, were traditionally suppressed. I think modern secular Um, governments which have largely bought into the materialist worldview um, see these as disruptive uh, influences that could lead to trouble um, and do do seem to think that it's their duty to suppress them. Um, But I don't think this is inherent necessarily in the nature of government because uh, most governments throughout most of human history have been open to religion, to spiritual uh, states of consciousness, they've, uh, although the people in government haven't necessarily practiced them themselves, they've acknowledged them and, um, and most, I mean, it's only very recently that governments have become secular, um, or even atheist. The, the Soviet Union was officially atheist, um, and religion was ruthlessly suppressed, um, because materialism was the official state philosophy. Um, but all traditional societies have religions of one sort or another, and all religions have altered states of consciousness of one sort or another. Um, that's what religions are primarily based on, uh, in their, certainly in their origins. Um, and so I think when we're talking about governments, we have to see this is not an invariable part of governments,
1: and this could change. Thank you, Rupert. Uh, next question is from Gabriela. Uh, she she asks, could you please elaborate on what happens biochemically in the brain at the time of actual death?
0: Well, that's a, a very difficult question because I don't think people really know very much. Um, there was a theory that was put about by Rick Strassman, um, who did research on DMT, legal research on DMT, uh, the idea that in, when we die, there's a release of DMT from the pineal gland. Um, actually, Rick Strassman's a friend of mine, and I, I suggested that to him in the first place, um, because I myself, my PhD is in biochemistry from Cambridge, and I was working on tryptophan biochemistry um, in plants when the amino acid tryptophan breaks down. Um, It releases, among other things, the plant hormone auxin. In animals and plants, when it breaks down, it also releases tryptamine. uh, And 5-hydroxytryptamine is a neurotransmitter in animal brains. Serotonin is its other name. And dimethyltryptamine, DMT, um, is a very powerful um, psychedelic. And these breakdown products of tryptophan uh, are released when... Proteins break down when cells die, um, but the effects of near-death experiences or death experiences happen very fast. Um, there isn't really time for all the cells to start breaking down. And it may be that um, some neurotransmitters or even DMT, which is produced naturally in the brain, uh, can be uh, produced and may account for some of the near death experiences but i'm not a chemical reductionist i think that there's no need for us to try and force all these experiences into a kind of psychedelic mould where we've endogenous psychedelics produced in the brain um, might help to explain some of these um, experiences during death but they might not i think it's an open question and you know in in, in dying brains Again, there's the, the, the it's, it's a reversible process. As we know from near-death experiences, people can have astonishingly intense near-death experiences and they, their brain can be flatlined for minutes, um, but can't be too long before they're brought back to uh, life if they're resuscitated. Otherwise there's irreversible brain damage, but you can have, um, intense near-death experiences without irreversible brain damage. So it's not dependent on the whole brain breaking down and decaying uh, the, the, these experiences. Um, so I just don't know. There haven't been that many studies of dying brains. Um, and so there isn't that
1: much known. But I mean, it's certainly an interesting question. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Astro Flower Tara. Taking into account the changing, changing morphic fields within people, all animals and um, vegetation on this planet, this is also noticeable across the solar system. Does this have an effect on shamanic activities and human evolution? Should technology adapt to the human consciousness rather uh, than like Elon Musk adapting human to technology? What developments in consciousness and technology will the future hold? Well, that's a
0: pretty far-ranging question. Um, well, um, well, I certainly am no Elon Muskite, Um and I'd be perfectly happy if Elon Musk and his friends do emigrate to the moon and stay there. Um, um, I think that the, one of the things that technologies have done for human consciousness is precisely through the invention of psychedelics. I mean, LSD is a synthetic compound based on a fungal product, um, lysergic acid in ergot. Um, uh, but I, I think we can, uh, I think there's, we've already got a huge drug industry for legal drugs of every kind. Um, and I think that the psychedelics can play a socially transformative role i'm slightly ambiguous about legalizing them though because as soon as they're legalized then large corporations will try to patent them and as happened with legalization of cannabis there's now enormous corporations and sort of the cottage industry of home growers and small-scale operations is being wiped out by vast industrial uh, concerns Um, And I I think it would be a great shame if that happened to psychedelics. Um, I think that in terms of evolution of consciousness, I think one of the great challenges comes more for religion than for science. Um, Religions are all based on altered states of consciousness, ultimately. The Buddha didn't become enlightened through doing a PhD. He became enlightened through meditating for years under bodhi trees and elsewhere. Um, jesus didn't become aware of his divine mission through going to a rabbinical seminary although he was well versed in the old testament it happened through his rite of passage through baptism by john the baptist a kind of near-death experience and then 40 days fasting in the wilderness a retreat a vision quest Um, and then spending a lot of time praying in the hills and the mountains um so I think that the religions need to recover that spiritual and visionary dimension, which I think they had and and still have. Uh, And, for example, here in England, we have all our wonderful cathedrals. Uh, which I think were buildings designed in the Middle Ages to create altered states of consciousness. The gigantic buildings with stained-glass windows, with psychedelic-type stained-glass windows. These buildings are not mere functional structures. You know, for, they're huge, soaring heights, echoing vaults, beautiful sculptures. Um, these are designed to produce altered states of consciousness. And um, it's not all about... Reading things in books, it's about experience. There's a movement I think is a really interesting movement in Britain at the moment called Cathedrals on Cannabis. Uh, Many people have found visiting our great cathedrals under the influence of cannabis um, is a really transformative and enlightening experience. Uh, Some people visit them under the influence of modest doses of um, uh, magic mushrooms and other mind-altering substances. And I think this is a very good way of connecting with um, a visionary tradition that's actually part of our own tradition is right here in modern England. That these buildings designed to alter our consciousness will do it if we let them. Um, and um, I think that one of the challenges for religions is to bring back the experiential dimension. And Santo Daime, um, this psychedelic church in Brazil, is, is one model for that. Um, so I think that we're not only do we need an evolution of technology I think we need an evolution of religion um, as well and uh, I think that if the Sante Daime people led retreats um, for example um, as people already do lead mushroom retreats in Holland and elsewhere um, I think that this could be uh, very valuable they could be rather light going on a religious or spiritual retreat well they would be going on a religious or spiritual retreat um, with people who are experienced in guiding this process Um, so i think actually the thing that's least developed about the modern world is consciousness and the study of consciousness and it doesn't necessarily require lots of technology Um, uh, brain scans and so forth are helpful in studying what happens in brains but actually most psychedelic research doesn't need all that paraphernalia and can be done much more cheaply through actually studying experience directly that's what consciousness is about experience and we've had a period in science particularly in the 20th century of behaviorism when uh, the aim of psychology in behaviorism was to eliminate experience entirely make psychology objective measuring any muscular movements and glandular secretions Uh, but consciousness is experience and so if we um, eliminate experience from science we end up with an incredibly unbalanced view of nature and that's what we've got in mechanistic materialism uh, which is very good for producing machines and technologies but terrible for human um, living in the world and living in harmony with nature. So I think it, consciousness research is it, not necessarily technology research is what could really help us all. And uh, development and evolution of religion as well as technology and social um, and and the organization of society is is what we really need. But taking into account the fact we have to change the way we live if we're going to go on surviving on this planet.
1: Next question is from Annie and she asks, uh, have you heard reports of or experienced group telepathy during group psychedelic experiences, for example, seeing the same entities or the same info- information being conveyed? If psychedelics are mind extending, could they enhance extension within a group? That's a very good question. And
0: um, I think probably, so I haven't heard of any studies of this kind because Most of the studies that are going on now, official studies, are medicalized uses of psychedelics for treating depression and addiction. And people in our modern world, highly individualist, people are treated as individuals, not as groups. Um, So the official research, as far as I know, is not looking at this aspect. But there are people who've done research on dream groups. Um, who find that groups of people who share their dreams together and to have bonding experiences together um, do have shared dreams they can meet each other in their dreams, for example, and they can tell uh, they can write down their dreams, then they find that similar things have happened. they actually have met in their dreams one person 's dream corresponds to another person 's dream they have overlapping dreams and if that happens with dreams. Given the similarity between dreams and psychedelic experiences, I would imagine it would happen through group psychedelic experiences as well. Places where people take psychedelics in groups would be the first place to look. I myself believe in doing inexpensive research, starting with the natural history of phenomena rather than fancy research involving lots of machinery. Um, where I'd look if I were looking at this question would be in um, ceremonies of the Native American church in, in uh, among Native Americans where they take peyote um, ceremonially as a group and in Santo Daime ceremonies where whole groups take um, ayahuasca together as part of a, a unified group which is kept unified through singing together and dancing together. And so there are already group psychedelic experiences that are happening um in these cultures Um, and if i were launching a project to answer that question that's where i'd start simply ask them um have they had this experience or have they noticed it if they haven't noticed it ask them if they could look out for it and see whether this does in fact happen i wouldn't mind betting it does um and um, as I say, it would be much easier to start from where people already are than to try and get government permission to set up research groups in Imperial College or somewhere else here in Britain and go through years and years of filling in forms and stuff. Um, don't need to do that. You can just go straight to where people are already or maybe already doing it.
1: OK, the next question is from uh, Pat he asked, uh, do you think there is an experience, for example, after DMT or psilocybin, that uh, after going through it, even hardcore materialists uh, will start to doubt if there is something outside their worldview?
0: Well, again, this is an empirical question. And, and people who've done surveys of hardcore materialists who've taken these substances find that many of them do change their worldview. There's one study I read recently where um the quite a number of people who took part in the study were atheists and materialists to start with and when they by the time they'd digested this experience um, very few of them were still atheists and materialists. Um, atheists are people of course who believe there's no consciousness out there um, beyond, uh, the human level, or some of them, I suppose, might be cosmic atheists and think there's consciousness in the entire cosmos, but there's nothing beyond. But that would be that would be more like pantheism than atheism. Um, so I suspect that in many people, in many cases, people's worldviews are changed uh, from atheism and materialism. Certainly, that was my own experience, and um, I know many other people who've had that experience. So I think that's one of the reasons we're seeing quite a major social transformation going on uh, in Europe and North America at the moment. I think that the, the spread of psychedelic experience, um, which has been going on since the 1960s, really uh, it was underground for a long period is a bit less underground. Now Um, is having this socially transformative effect. I don't know
1: if this Enough time for one more question.
0: Okay, um, let's have one more. Okay.
1: Yes. Um, so this is from Gabriela. She asks, besides the use of psychedelics, what kind of practices and books um, do you suggest to improve one's ability to dream?
0: Well, um, I haven't offhand got a... Uh, there are several very helpful books I've, I've read. Um, one book that I find... Particularly helpful myself is a book called An Experiment with Time by J.W. Dunn, D-U-N-N-E. And um, it's written long, long ago, almost a hundred years ago. Um, what Dunn found was that if he wrote down his dreams, uh, kept a record of his dreams, that he found that he was dreaming about things uh, that happened in the next two or three days. Um, what he discovered is that because you've got other people to do this. And I did his exercises myself. And I found the same. that We normally in our dreams are experiencing not only memories of things that have happened, we're experiencing things that are not personal at all, what Jung would call archetypes and of the collective unconscious. But we can also experience things that haven't yet happened, sometimes a vivid flash of something that happens two or three days later. There's a precognitive element to dreams, most of us don't notice that because uh, we're not, we don't write our dreams down. We forget them very easily, forget most of them. So one thing is writing them down, which makes one more aware of them and more aware of the way they connect us with our own lives and the future and the past. Um, another practice, of course, and there are several books on this, is our, of lucid dreaming, uh, where you can become aware during your dream of the fact you're dreaming. And then the dream becomes more controllable. You can go where you want and you can do what you want. You can fly if you want to. Um, and the practice of lucid dreaming is something you can practice, you can improve at. It's, I only very occasionally have lucid dreams, but some people through doing lucid dream practices Charles Morley wrote a book on this, which um, about dream yoga, um, is uh, you can get better at it. And then that means the dream state, instead of being just random dreams that happen to you, as it were, is something where you can become much more present in your dreams. In the Tibetan tradition, many Tibetan monks practice lucid dreaming, which they call dream yoga, because they believe that when we die, we go on dreaming. As it were. And if you practice lucid dreaming, instead of being confused in the after dream, after death state, uh, you're much more able to know what's happening and to to deal with it and to um, navigate your way through the after death condition. And this actually raises a a very general point, perhaps an appropriate one for the last question uh, of the evening, um, that these realms of consciousness we explore in dreams and in psychedelic states, may continue after we're dead. I personally think that when we die, um, we lose the ability to wake up, um, but we don't lose the ability to dream. It's as if we can go on dreaming, but we can no longer wake up because we haven't got a physical body to wake up in. And post mortal survival, which almost all religions believe in, in one way or another, uh, may be a kind of continuation in the dream state and of course the kind of dreams you have after you're dead depend on the kind of person you are what you believe what you expect what you've experienced and as the tibetans would argue um, the practice you've had in this life of navigating the dream realm and many religious experiences occur in dreams in the bible many of the visions that occur to Abraham and to other figures in in the Bible, occur in dreams. Um, A lot of the uh, Bible is about dream states. And, uh, you know, these are taken seriously in all traditions. Um, And I think that when you see the afterlife in terms of some kind of dream-like state, then practicing dreams, paying attention to dreams, exploring these dream-like realms more consciously through psychedelic experiences, all become very relevant, not only to this life, but also to the next. And it's not, I don't personally believe that we go on in a kind of in, indefinite dreamlike state forever. I think that the, um, we may pass through a transitional period of, of spiritual development after we're dead. And we may eventually end at a state where we Enter a kind of spiritual state of bliss, like a mystical experience that in this life last only a short time. We may reach the state where that becomes like a permanent condition and we become part of um, ultimate blissful consciousness. Um, and a kind of transition through a dream type journey after we die uh, may be part of that. And therefore paying attention to dreams and practicing um Our awareness in dreams while we're alive may be a very
1: good thing to do. Thank you so much, Rupert, uh, for sharing your time with us uh, in this evening. And thank you all for coming uh, to the Oxford Psychedelic Society and joining us to speak on consciousness and the psychedelic experience. Uh, Thank you for, thank you all for listening.